Hey everyone, welcome to Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. We're changing our format a little bit, which is both exciting and terrifying to me. Uh, Don't worry, we will still continue to interview experts weekly on our live cast, which you can watch on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. And you can find more information about who uh, is on the schedule by visiting foodtank.com. So I've decided to start off with a little bit of a rant because it's kind of what I do best. Um, I recently read an article in Bon Appetit entitled, Will Plant-Based Meat Save the World? Which was written, and I find this really cool and really interesting, by a butcher slash farmer named Sophia Hampton. Um, She describes very eloquently what it's like to visit one of Impossible Burger's production factories and also a test kitchen at Beyond Meat. And these are arguably two of the most well-known brands of plant-based protein on the market right now. Uh, These plant-based products are sold in grocery stores, fast food chains, and they're really reaching um, a much, much wider audience than the veggie burgers and lentil burgers and and black bean burgers that I grew up with. Uh, Sophia talked talks about how the meat from these two companies really contrasts with both the farm animal production she sees in her own community, um, which I imagine is very idyllic with cows grazing on pasture in in, in beautiful upstate New York, and also what she knows about the uh, industrial meat production process that really comes from factory farms. She also seems to understand very intimately what it takes to produce chicken, pork, beef, and dairy in a way that is regenerative and respectful of both animals and the land. And I also think she understands why plant-based meats and alternative proteins are so attractive to investors, concerned eaters, and researchers across the globe who are worried about the impact of animal protein on human health, the environment, worker safety, and animal welfare. Uh, there's no question that, you know, industrial meat production is is really massive. Uh, in the U.S. alone, we slaughter about 9 billion chickens, 124 million hogs, uh, and 33 million cows annually. And the average person eats about 100 kilograms or roughly 222 pounds of, of meat each year. Um There's some debate on how much livestock contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, um, but Sophia quotes the UN Food and Agriculture Organization in in the article, and they say that it's roughly um, a little over 14%. There are other experts who think it's much higher, ranging, you know, anywhere from 20 to even 50%. Um, And there's some debate on how animals that are raised on pasture, there are folks who think that they uh, contribute more to greenhouse gas emissions than those raised in factory farms. There is a lot of debate on these issues. Um, I think the UN Food and Agriculture Organization is probably the most well-respected, and and 14% is is quite a bit, but I I, I think what what is more important to me is really the social and other environmental impacts um, that come from industrial meat production. Uh, the Center, uh, Center for a Livable Future at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Baltimore, where I live, have really been longtime leaders in assessing how large-scale farm animal operations can uh, impact communities in really negative ways through air and water pollution, or how these so-called farms are contributing to 
antibiotic resistance. About 80% of all antibiotics are used on animals, not people in the United States. And, and they're used for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is to keep animals alive in very crowded conditions to keep them, you know, somewhat healthy so that they can go to slaughter. Um, and the other is to increase growth and weight gain. Um, that overuse and that misuse of antibiotics is making um, those drugs less effective for treating humans. And while we might not know how COVID-19, you know, actually originated, it, you know, it's, it's a zoonotic disease that probably spread from, from animals to humans first. Um, the, there are other uh, kinds of diseases like H1N1, avian flu, and Nipah virus uh, that did spread from farm animal operations and, and you know, had a huge impact on, on people's health. Um, early in my career, I studied the global growth in livestock production and the increase of factory farming style operations across the globe, especially in places like Asia. And I visited way more slaughterhouses and processing plants than I, than I care to count. And I've, you know, talked to, um, companies and workers and, and, and farmers all over the world. Um, and I think I understand pretty closely more than I ever thought, uh, how dehumanizing these operations can be both to um, the workers uh, who, who, you know, have to visit them every day, not just, you know, um, make the occasional visit like I did, and also the animals who, who are, are slaughtered and processed at these places. It's a really stark contrast uh, to the dozens and dozens and dozens of regenerative, organic, and pasture-raised um, operations that I've had the opportunity to visit all over the world. You know, really cool um, uh, chickens ra uh, uh, raised on pasture in places like the Philippines, and instead of using antibiotics, they treat their chickens with medicinal plants. Uh, companies like Nyman Ranch Pork here in the United States who raise their pigs outside and have ha have their farmers adhere to strict animal welfare regulations and who are also really trying to up their environmental sustainability game. There are also companies like Memphis Meats and Ala Farms who we'll hear from a little bit later in the podcast who are focusing on a different kind of alternative meat production. Those companies are practicing what is, is called cultivated meat production. Aleph uh, Farms explains what they do is the following, which is very simple and easy for me to understand. So I'm just going to go through it kind of step by step with what they have on their website. Um, they say that they integrate nature's design to grow steak from the various cell types comprising it. They isolate the cells from a healthy cow without slaughtering the animal. Their products are GM free and don't require antibiotics. They nurture the cells in an optimal environment. And from my understanding, this is kind of like a big vat filled with nutrients that feed the meat cells. And in the same way, I, I imagine that a cow would uh, get nutrients from, from feed or grass. And then the cells grow and form tissues in the process of tissue regeneration, uh, constructing a stake using sort of scaffolding <laughs> Um, the same way that it, that it would in nature. And, and the Aleph Farms has sort of three standards of quality, nutritional, sensory, and culinary. And from what I'm told, the meat looks, smells, and tastes like regular meat. And it takes much, much less time to, to produce than, than um, regular meat. Um, I, I want to go back to that Bon Appetit article for a minute because... 
you know, the author expresses how she fears that companies of plant-based protein um, and, you know, Aleph Farms and, and Memphis Meats, those are cell-based uh, products, could pose risks to independent farmers and how uh, small organic farmers can also not sustain the current demand for meat. If everyone wants to eat as much meat as Americans do, we, the world just simply doesn't have enough land and resources to fill the, fulfill that demand. Um, so I, I think there is room in the marketplace for those products that Sophia talked about, Impossible uh, Burger, um, Beyond Meat. Um, and, and I think there's also room for cultivated, cell-based, slaughter-free meat. Um, but what is probably needed is more education and awareness of these products. And, and we have to think about how farmers and eaters can be involved and how sort of the process of developing these products can be more participatory and again create more awareness both Aleph Farms and Memphis Meats don't see themselves as as competitors to traditional livestock farming um, but as a complement and they are seeking input from ranchers and farmers and other experts including folks like me um, so that they can make better decisions around the future of their companies. They're, this is a really mission-driven approach, and it's what a lot of new food and agriculture companies and startups are, are really starting off with. Uh, unlike you know older or more well-established companies who have to change their practices to meet the demand for social justice or environmental sustainability from their consumers, um, these are these other companies are just starting off with those missions in mind. And I think it will be really interesting to watch how many newer and smaller and medium-sized companies enter the food space with that, that mission, you know, being very mission-driven um, as, as part of their, you know, their ethos. Um, I'm excited um, to have had conversations with both David Kay of Memphis Meats and Didier Tubia of Aleph Farms. Uh, and I, I'm hoping you'll, you'll learn a little bit more about how uh, cell-based meat works and where they see the future of this technology going and, and how soon it will be on consumers' plates. How do you respond to critics from sort of all sides? So I'm sure, you know, the some of the beef lobby groups are probably very critical of, of what you all are doing. I'm sure some regenerative farmers are questioning you. How do you respond to a, a lot of these different types of criticism? When it comes to oh, starting with maybe the, the folks interested in regenerative agriculture, you know, when it when it comes to because because I've spoken with many of those folks as well. And I think it's safe to say the things that motivate them are largely the same things that motivate us. You know, they, right, right. they care about environmental footprint, they care about animal welfare, they care about public health. Um, and I think all of these things uh, are, are the same things that are getting us out of bed in the morning. And so I think, you know, finding that common ground, uh, recognizing that our, our means may be different, but we ultimately have the same end. Um, or at yeah. least very similar ends, I think is is really valuable. Um, and, and I think it's it's honestly, I think it's it's similar for for folks on the other side. You know, you mentioned um, ranchers and farmers. I think there's a lot of common ground that we can find with them. You know, we um, signed a letter with the North American Meat Institute on regulatory issues. Um, some of our investors come from the from the meat industry. Right. Really, I think, you know, if I could sum it up in, in one phrase, it's it's this value that we have at Memphis Meats that we like to call big tent. 
uh, this idea that uh, what we're doing touches so many different elements of the food system, so many different elements of life and of society. And why can't we um, find common ground with a bunch of diverse stakeholders and, uh, and really um, chart towards a solution that everybody can get behind? And so that's something that we've really internalized. I mean, we literally have the words Big Tent written, painted on our wall. Yeah. Our um, which I haven't seen in a while since I've been working from home. <laughs> right. but, uh, but it's something we really try to internalize and to, and to bake into the DNA of our company. Cultivated meat is um, a true extension and an, um, a natural evolution of agriculture. We look at the natural phenomenon um, occurring around us. We watch um, tissues growing and, and developing in nature, and we incorporate the same phenomenon under control conditions, uh, same as um, the initial domestication. That's why it's called cellular agriculture. And uh, the way we look at it is really, um, an additional uh, approach within the agricultural ecosystem for uh, producing animal products. Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating. And I think one of the reasons that I personally was interested in Aleph and being willing and excited to be part of the advisory group is that, you know, it it goes back to to what you, you identified before, that there are a blend of solutions really needed. And this is not either or. You're, you're a meat eater, a traditional meat eater yourself, but you believe that there's a way to sort of combine traditional farming practices with this new technology. And do you think that's sort of the wave of the future, combining the, those, you know, the, the things that we know that farmers have practiced for a long time with sort of these new things that you, you, companies like yours are developing? Yeah, first, uh, I believe that farmers are incorporating a lot of new technologies um, in the farming practices. And um, you know, if you, you had um, a farmer, um, you know, from the time of our grandparents uh, traveling through time and, um, you know, appearing uh, in, a, in, in, in a large um, uh, farm of, uh, of today, he would not understand what's going on there. I think sure. the, the farming practices and agriculture has evolved very um, quickly and uh, agriculture is already a very uh, technology-intensive practice today. Um, and the way we look at, at cultivated meat is really a second category of meat products. And we do believe right. that same as uh, we have um, white wine and uh, red wine, for instance, which are two different types of wines um, and not necessarily interchangeable. In 10, 20 years, we'll have two categories of meat products. And we'll have um, the, um, the conventional meat harvested from a slaughtered sure. animal and we'll have the cultivated meat, which will be uh, slaughter-free. And we believe that each uh, product category, same as red and white wines, would have different um, set of attributes, different value proposition, will not be competing head to head, will probably target different um, segments of the population. I also want to talk about some news that uh, I've been reading about lately. The first is related to meat processing plants. Uh, Senator Cory Booker has introduced the Safe Line Speeds in COVID-19 Act. And this act is meant to suspend and prohibit the U.S. Department of Agriculture line speed waivers that endanger workers at meatpacking plants. According to our friends at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, meat processing plants across the country have become COVID-19 hotspots. Uh, more than 30,000 
Again, 30,000 meatpacking workers have tested positive for COVID-19, and more than 168 have passed away. And at the same time, the USDA has approved nearly 20 requests from meatpacking plants to exceed regulatory limits on line speeds, despite the risks posed to workers, consumers, and animal welfare. This, in my opinion, is actually criminal. And it shows how our U.S. Department of Agriculture and our government and meat companies are putting profit over people. Um, the act that, that Senator Booker introduced uh, will, will do the following. It will suspend all active waivers issued by USDA related to line speeds at poultry and meat establishments and will suspend USDA's authority to issue new waivers. It will prohibit the Department of Agriculture from using federal funds to develop uh, propose, finalize, issue, amend, or implement any policy, regulation, directive, uh, constituent update, or any agency program that would increase line speeds at meat and poultry establishments. Um, it will ensure that the provisions are of the bill are in addition to, not in lieu of, any state laws or regulations designed to further protect worker safety or animal welfare beyond what the bill provides. Um, and it will require the, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, to review the effectiveness of various actions taken by USDA, the Department of Labor, the Department of Health and human services and meat and poultry establishments in response to COVID-19 to protect animal food and worker safety. Um, you know, it, it does some other things too. I could go on and list them, but I, I think the, the point here is that, you know, hopefully this act and others that will, uh, you know, hope be introduced in Congress will go a long way in protecting these frontline workers who were underpaid and and suffered from high rates of injury pre-pandemic and now are even in more danger than they were before. Many of them, um, you know, English is not their first language. Many of them are recent immigrants. They don't always feel comfortable, uh, com- uh, you know, complaining or asking questions for fear of losing their jobs. They deserve way better than what they're getting uh, in their efforts to make sure that food gets on everyone's plate. Uh, again, these are people who are literally on the front line of making sure that our food system, you know, continues to run smoothly. The the act is co-authored by Democratic Senators Feinstein, Warren, Sanders, Merkley, Blumenthal, and, and Harris. They're all Democrats again. But this should really be a bipartisan issue. Republicans should also be supporting this act. The health of meat workers is imperative to having a really healthy and safe food system. And if we leave these workers in peril, we're all going to suffer. And I think that's something to keep in mind as folks head to the polls in November. Bob Martin, who who is um, at the Center for a Livable Future, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he's you know one of the first people to use this term citizen eater, people who who go to vote for the kind of food system that they want to see. And I think, you know, COVID-19 has really exposed so many cracks. It showed us how fragile things are. And if we really want to stand up for workers, we should use our vote to, to, to help make sure that they're kept safe. Um, the second piece of news that I want to share is that the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, in a recent report, is advocating for major changes in the U.S. food system in response to COVID-19. They have a lot of suggestions, and folks can, um, you know, Google the report, but one of the big things 
for me that I think is exciting is they're calling for more focus on nutrition. And it's always seemed ironic to me. I went to the the uh, Tufts uh, Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, and uh, that's where I earned my master's degree. But it's always been puzzling to me why nutrition isn't always a part of the conversation when we're talking about food and agriculture. It just seems nonsensical. There really continues to be a focus on investing in production and yields and calories but less funding and investment for what actually makes crops nutrient-dense and also protective. Foods that act as medicine and keep us healthy in general, but also give us stronger immunity so that we can withstand COVID-19 and and other illnesses. My hope is that other foundations and research institutions and investors will really put more money in studying nutrition and making sure that the the food that reaches people's plates is as nutrient-rich and also delicious as it can be, because that's what we deserve. I want to end with just a few predictions. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do think that even more companies are going to enter the alternative protein space. Already, there are beyond meat-like companies working on producing um, uh, products that taste and look and feel like fish and 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 other meats. Um, they they have similar textures and tastes, etc. And more and more cultured uh, uh, meat entrepreneurs are also entering the space. It will be interesting to see what the regulatory challenges they face. Uh, it, you know, uh, from our own government and, and governments in other countries, and if consumers will be actually willing to to eat slaughter-free meat, or if there will be some sort of uh, yuck factor, because it seems to them at least uh, unnatural. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a wait and see. I want to thank you all for your patience as we change this format. And thank you all so much for listening. Let us know what you think. Um, We're still continuing again to interview experts every week as part of our live cast series. So check out foodtank.com if you want more information. And please email me at danielle at foodtank.com with your suggestions, your criticisms, and your ideas. I really do look forward to hearing all of those things. Tell me what we can do better. Tell me who you'd like to hear from. Uh, Give me news. Give me more ideas. I I really uh, need that fodder to to make this podcast uh, more interesting and, and useful for you all. Thanks again, and please stay well.